0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. my will be done. Much of the world's population has a similar attitude. It's prevalent at least in that portion of people that believes in any sort of all-powerful supreme being or perhaps in just some kind of governing and unifying, balancing force. Jew or Buddhist, Muslim or Hindu, even many who hang the label Christian on themselves, They all want a God that makes things right. They just want to define what right is themselves. I'm sure that you've also heard the following statement or something relatively similar to it. I could never believe in a God who would do something that I can't agree with. Now these folks can rattle off a whole list of things, many of which I'm sure you can probably predict as well, a God who would allow evil to exist in the world, a God who would let so-called innocent people be slaughtered, a God who would allow them or a, a dear relative or friend to suffer illness, injury, or death, a God who would let hunger or disaster come upon thousands or millions. Many people, religious or atheists alike, would want to insist that any God that is worthy of their belief, their loyalty, and their respect must play by their rules and conform to their wishes and designs. Now, it's not enough that the final outcomes or goals meet their objectives or are even objectively good. For many, even the methods by which a God would achieve these outcomes needs to meet their approval. And if we are willing to admit it ourselves, we sometimes have that same sort of blasphemous attitude. Now, we might not be guilty of exactly the same sin as Peter, rejecting the Lord's news that he was to suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders in Jerusalem and be raised again on the third day. We can't very well do that, can we, because we have just confessed a moment ago that we believe that exactly those things did happen. You see, we have a historical perspective that poor Peter did not. And we also have the scriptural and the creedal testimony of the Christian faith that atheists and believers in false gods don't either. We can, however, find ourselves shoulder-to-shoulder with Peter in his overall attitude toward Jesus that day. Belligerent, rebuking God for doing things differently than what we want or we expect or we believe to be right. Thinking that we know better as God's creatures or what the world of God's creation needs and wants to have happen. And it happens, you know, every time we ask that question, why, God? We ask it at the global level. Why is there so much suffering? Volcanoes and tsunamis, hurricanes and earthquakes, droughts and floods. Why is there so much evil? Crime and corruption, war and persecution, immorality and hatred. And we ask it at the personal level too. Why do I have this illness? Why can't I get or keep the sort of job that I want? Why can't my family get along better? Why do I keep struggling with my addiction? Why doesn't my spouse love me and respect me anymore? Our doubts and our contradictions, our arrogance and our pride, sometimes they even affect our prayers and infect our prayers, don't they? We strive to put things into God's hand in prayer, to say with our hearts as well as our mouths, "Thy will be done, but in the end we often end up tying God's hands instead to maneuver his hands, if you will, like that slide on the Ouija board, pushing him toward the results and toward the methods that we think are best. Thy kingdom come, Lord, but my will be done. It is here in Matthew's Gospel account that Jesus first reveals the true implications of his coming and his kingdom. His earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, had been given glimpses and hints of the purpose of his incarnation, to save his people from their sins, for the rising and the falling of many in Israel, to be the Son of the Most High, and to reign as David's heir forever. Yet they didn't know exactly how this was to come about. Even John the Baptist, the one who had declared Jesus to be the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. He was unaware of just what sort of path or straight way he was preparing in the wilderness for the Lord. So at this point, Jesus has been confessed by Peter and the other disciples to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now in today's Gospel account, he reveals to them just what sort of Christ he is going to be. He tells them that his anointing is God's chosen one and his coronation as king of the Jews is not going to be quite so glamorous or anywhere near as glorious as what they might have imagined up to now. Peter rebels against this violently and vigorously. He pulls Jesus aside and tries to talk some sense into him. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. In other words, Don't be talking like that, Jesus. You're going to ruin everything. Can't you see that we're all convinced of your divine connections? More and more people are hearing about you and your power and your wisdom every day. Just give it a little more time and you'll have enough popularity and support to take the kingdom back from those hated Romans and their Edomite lackey, King Herod. But this was Peter's sinful nature talking, questioning God's wisdom and God's thoughts and ways. It was not the same spirit-led Peter who a short time before had confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter had been conditioned by the culture around him and by its temptations and its values to see God in a way other than how God would want himself seen and as he had been revealed. Peter wanted a way that suited man's wishes and the devil's purposes. And that's because Peter lived in the same spiritual tension that we do. Confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior in one breath and turning around a moment later and questioning or even denying that he really knows what we think and we feel and we suffer and we need. Peter needed a purging an exorcism, a driving out of that evil that had taken hold of his likeness and his image of God. So Jesus summons his divine power and he speaks the evil right out of Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. This was no ordinary demonic possession, mind you, one that leads regular people like us into temptation and astray from God's word. No, this was the prince of darkness himself, hell-bent on interfering with the work of God in Christ. It was Satan once again trying to deter Jesus from following that path to the cross that his father had laid out before him. Peter certainly had his mind set on the things of man and not the things of God when he rebuked Jesus. The things of men are corrupted through and through by sin by the rejection of God's ways and God's will, replacing them with our own desires and our own conjectures. We continually think in the dark recesses of our hearts, Thy kingdom come, Lord, but my will be done. It's why Jesus goes on to say in the very next breath, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To deny is to reject, to turn away from, as Peter would do to Jesus on that fateful night in the high priest's courtyard. But the denial that Jesus speaks of in this passage is a healthy one, not a sin. It is to set aside our own thoughts and our own notions and our own ideas, to realize our own ignorance and our limitations, and to throw our lot in with Jesus for better or for worse in this life. It's knowing and trusting that all that befalls and all that besets us here is no match for that which he has promised to us, that which will be ours forever if we but cling to his cross. Peter received his exorcism that day as the word from Jesus drove Satan out and put that wretched serpent behind him on his path to Jerusalem, trampled underfoot as was promised so long before to Adam and to Eve. So too did Peter live to see the kingdom of God come. In the suffering and the death of Jesus to atone for his sins and for ours. In the empty tomb which sealed God's promises to all believers that their trust in Jesus' death and resurrection would provide us with victory over sin and death. In the ascension which took Jesus from Peter's sight but not from his heart returning his Lord and Savior once again to reign forever at the right hand of the Father. And in the miraculous power that was provided by the Holy Spirit to Peter and the other apostles at Pentecost, enabling them to set aside their own notions about God's will and to faithfully proclaim God's word so that others might deny themselves and follow Jesus too. And so you came here to church today. Led by the same Holy Spirit as was Peter when he confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. But tormented too by the same devil and world and sinful flesh that caused Peter to resist God's will, to rebuke his Lord and to insist on having things another way, a way different than what from what God had spoken and revealed to him. You too struggle daily with That tension between trust and belief and surrender on the one hand and doubt and unbelief and resistance to God's holy and perfect will on the other. It's a good thing for you then that Jesus is here. He's done his exorcism on you already today. Speaking Satan out of you when he declared, I forgive you all your sins. He's heard you confess Him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, too, in the Creed. And He's blessed you for not having had this revealed to you by the flesh, but by His Father in Heaven through the Holy Spirit. And soon He will invite you up here to His holy table to partake of yet another blessing of His kingdom, His very body and blood, the breaking and shedding of which has secured for you the kingdom that has indeed come, though it is not yet fully seen. For now, though, he offers you a foretaste of the eternal heavenly banquet, a banquet that still provides you the fullness of his grace and the infinite power of his forgiveness. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. But stay always before me, Jesus, for your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. Amen.